Hey, good morning. Good morning. morning. Uh, If you've been here for any of the past couple weeks, this is not what we've been talking about. Who can remember what the general topic has been the last couple weeks? Well, okay, that, I couldn't understand that at all. Try that again. So I'm texted to you. Okay, that's good. My phone's on doing Facebook Live, so that's going to be great. We've been talking about discipleship in a digital age. So what does it look like for us to grow in Jesus? Discipleship is the process of becoming more like Jesus. After you believe in him, after you choose to follow him, the whole process of your life is becoming more like him so that you can live your life like he would if he were living your life, becoming like him and also doing what he would do. And so we've been looking last couple weeks at what, how do we engage with technology? How do we engage with screens in a very digital age and how does that affect our discipleship? It's been pretty good. And, uh, This morning, we're starting another kind of focus. We're going to do two uh, more weeks similar to that, but we're going to be looking at discipleship in a consumer culture. You know, how do we engage with our stuff and money in the midst of a culture that's pretty consumeristic, right? And we're historically, you know, the wealthiest or among the most wealthiest uh, nations that's ever been. The standard of living is very high. Uh, What do we do in a culture that basically says, get as much as you can, as fast as you can, so you can use it on yourself, and uh, money's the thing that's going to give you the good life, security or enjoyment, preferably both. So how does, how would Jesus interact with our money if he were living our life? So that's kind of the question. So uh, let's just take a second to talk about the environment we, talk, we are all kind of in, I think, as we step into this topic. Um, I was having a conversation with my uh, second oldest son, Sam, and uh, like he always, uh, always, man, he's, he's been doing this for a while. He's always like, Dad, how much do we make? How much money do you have in the bank? And I, I don't know, it's a parenting decision. You got to figure out when the right time is. But eventually, like, uh, like he is often doing these days, he's wearing me down with his incessant asking. And so I went ahead and uh, sat him down and we talked about it. And um, the, the part that I want to draw your attention to and the part that kind of made me notice was not that we had that conversation, but that afterwards I found myself having to say, now, in our culture, it's not very polite to talk about this with your friends. It wouldn't be polite for you to say, well, this is how much we have. This is how much my dad makes. How about you? It's just not polite. And so I, um, I, I, was, I was curious afterwards as I thought back on it, why did I say that? Why did I say that? Why did I feel like I had to tell him, don't talk to anyone about this? So in our culture, cash is king, we're super wealthy, at least generally speaking. We're really liking money, we're really generally going for getting more money and more wealth, but we also don't talk about it, at least in this context. I think it is true that the, the big three taboo subjects are politics, religion, and money. That's right. Do not talk about that, please. Right? There may be a TED talk about it, but we don't talk one-on-one about it. It's not a normal conversation starter. So why is that? Why is that? I think maybe at least in, in there somewhere is a sensitivity to shame. Like if we were to talk about this, I would feel shame if I had to report that I don't have as much as I want to have or as much as you. 
Or maybe the flip side, there would be shame that I've got maybe more than I should and I'd feel guilty or bad in front of you. Or shame that I'm spending too much or I'm spending it uh, maybe not so wisely and I'd be ashamed at how I'm using it. Maybe you're in debt fairly uh, significantly and it feels like you would be embarrassed. You'd be embarrassed. You don't want anyone to know about it. So uh, we're going to start with just a little uh, pretest. probably isn't the right word. Some of you, your anxiety just shot maybe through the roof. It's not a pretest. Uh, uh, two kind of orienting questions to help us to engage with this, because I think the noise that we bring in on this topic is kind of fairly high. So the first question I'd like for you to ask is, what are you feeling right now? We're going to take a second. And try to answer that to yourself. Pay attention to your feelings. We just, I just told you we're going to be talking about money and probably giving for the next two weeks in church, and you're here right now and you can't get out of it. What are you feeling? Try to identify something specific. And then also, uh, I'd encourage you to identify a thought, a thought connected to that feeling. Any idea why you're feeling that? What are you thinking right now? Maybe it's connected to messages you've received about money from your growing up years, your family, maybe your church experiences. Um, I think helping identify, helping us identify what we're bringing in is going to be really helpful as we move along and move ahead in this. Maybe you're here right now and you're uncomfortable. We don't talk about this a lot. Maybe you're defensive or threatened, maybe. Maybe there's that sense that, you know, this is just another church. Talking about money, trying to get my money. Maybe you're suspicious. Uh, pastors are just trying to talk about money, you know, after the first of the year to try to pad the budget and get a bigger paycheck because this, this is just a business, right? Am I being cynical enough? Maybe you're feeling anxious or maybe there's fear or dread. Oh, no, if I really have to t- engage with this, God's probably going to tell me to do something a little different than I'm currently doing. Or maybe there's shame. If anyone knew really what was going on with my finances, they would judge me. Maybe if I really open this up to God, maybe God is judging me. Maybe he's mad at me. Maybe you're bored and you've already checked out. Maybe you're excited and you think this is something cool and you're excited to talk about it. What are you bringing in today? And so I'm going to ask you to take those answers to God as we kind of kick off today. A brief little prayer. Uh, just take time and uh, tell God what you're feeling. Say, God, here's what I'm feeling. And God, here's what I'm thinking. And then ask him to help you hear his words and his heart to you this morning as we talk about money. And will you pray also for me that I'd be able to speak as he want me to and to speak his words? Yes, Jesus, please speak to us. Show us your heart. Show us your heart and draw us forward, not with shame or guilt, but with what you seem to do throughout your scriptures as you entice us with better things. Lord, will you entice us with better things as we consider your call on our lives as we relate to money? Amen.
wouldn't it be nice if it was actually something good and fun and delightful? It just might be. So discipleship. We're in discipleship. Our hope is that this is useful to you as you disciple yourself to Jesus, as you're in a discipling church, as we disciple together towards Jesus. Disciple just means a learner. A learner. You know, there were the original disciples that were with Jesus, with him, learning from him, trying to become like him, learning to do what he would do. And that's what we're still doing today. And uh, those of us who are, uh, have put our trust in Christ, now we have the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, to help us in this process of growing and becoming more like Jesus. Man, it is a slow process at times. The iterative small changes that tend to add up. First Timothy 4, 7 through 8, Paul, Apostle Paul is talking to one of his younger protégés that's leading a church now, and he says, Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value. Are you guys... Uh, through with me, giving my little gym examples now that I finally started going to the gym. I've been going to the gym. It's been good for me, actually. I didn't want to do it. It has actually been very good for me. But um, godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both this present life and the life to come. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Your training now for your life, your training in godliness now isn't just a holding pattern until you die and then you get poofed to perfect anyways. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that these are training days and we are becoming now who we will be and that when we, those of us who trust in Christ, when we stand up again in the resurrection, in a world where Jesus is right there with us and everything is put right and there's no more sin or death anymore and the forever kingdom is here, when we stand back up again, there will be continuity between our life and now. It'll still be the same us. And the work we do now will matter. We're becoming who we will be. It's not wasting. These are training days. And there's few more potent discipleship or training tools than money. Right? Our use of money, it's actually a pretty potent one. Uh, John Wesley, famous church planter, he's famously said, the last thing to be converted to Christ is a man's purse. Or today, perhaps they would say wallet or Venmo, whatever it is. The last thing that tends to be converted in our lives is our use of money. Oh, man, we try to keep that at the back. We try to keep it at the back. It's the last thing oftentimes that our discipleship is willing to seep into. I wonder why that is. But, oh, man, once your discipleship starts to push into how you actually use and consider your money and your resources, it's pretty amazing how the life of Christ flows through you and how the kingdom comes through you. It's pretty, it's pretty cool stuff. Looking at how we use our money and our resources forces us to come face-to-face with the way of the world and the way of Christ because they tend to be actually pretty different. The way of radical generosity that Christ calls us to will feel like foolishness, especially as you start. It causes you to confront your fears that maybe you won't have enough if you follow God's way that actually it's going to leave you destitute. You're going to get screwed over, right? Church is going to take your money. Causes us to confront our basic heart set towards idolatry. Are we having fun now? That's a big, that's a big word. This is a big one, idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry, idol worship. Idolatry is not just bowing down in front of a bronze statue. Wouldn't it be nice if it was? Because then we would know for sure we're not doing it. Right? 
We don't do that here. That's not a problem of mine. But unfortunately, perhaps, as the Bible uses the term idolatry, it is much more general. Idolatry is when a person puts their faith, puts their hope in anything else other than the God of the Bible for their life, to make their life work. And ever since the uh, Adam and Eve in the garden rebelled and turned this way and tried to find life apart from the creator God, everything has gone sideways and we all have a natural propensity and predisposition to try to do that. And you know what? We do it with our money. We do it with our money. I think that um, money and stuff and the desire for money, the love of money, the pursuit of money is the most pervasive idolatry in our country. I really think it is. And I'm extremely confident that all of you, and me included, have gone to the temple and bowed down there, metaphorically speaking, at some point in your life, probably this morning at some point. And that the process of discipleship is learning to identify the places where we're still putting our hope in something other than God. God is so patient with us. And learning to see those new places and to turn towards God there. It's a slow process. And I think we're all there. We're all there. And last bummer comment, perhaps. You do not have to be rich to struggle with idolatry with money, right? You actually don't have to be rich because both rich folks and poor folks, middle-class folks, are tempted to put their trust in money, and maybe if I could just get a little more of it and what it could get me, for their life. The haves want to use it for themselves, and they'd like a little bit more. The have-nots, that's what they're hoping for in their life. If I could just get that, then my life would be good. Because greed, another word for idolatry with money, greed comes in two main flavors, spenders and savers. There's some general wisdom that saving is pretty good, but looking to orient your life around finding your security in saving finding your pleasure in spending, these are both heart sets that are idolatrous and ways that are not part of the way of Christ. Both spenders and savers look to money. That means even men and women living at the poverty line can still be worshiping money in this way, can still be struggling with greed. I know this is kind of offensive, right? I promise it's going to get a little better, but we got to hear the bad news before we hear the good news, right? Otherwise, we've came, we came here for nothing, right? Why did we come here? Some great music, perhaps but we want to grow in Christ together. I hope this is useful for you. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus, he says this. Didn't you know? He said, actually, nobody can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one at least and despise the other. Here's what I mean, Jesus says. You can't serve both God and money. They're competitors. Serve, not have, serve. You can't serve both God and money. Money in itself, it's actually not a good or a bad thing. It's a value-neutral thing. It's a resource. But it's powerful. It's really powerful. Kind of like nuclear power, maybe. It's powerful. It's got great potential for good and great potential for destruction. And when you throw into the mix that all of us have a natural predisposition towards sin and trying to do life on our own apart from God, it's powerful and it's dangerous doesn't mean we get rid of it, but it is dangerous. Paul, talking again to Timothy again, we're 
uh, going ahead in chapter 6, verse 9, he tells them, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's not what our culture says, right? More and more is what gives you pleasure and security. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of money. Some people, eager for money, have wandered even away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the love of money, the looking to money for your uh, sense of security and for your life and your enjoyment, it's not just morally evil to pursue money for your life. It's also stupid. It's just so stupid. Especially if you zoom out a little bit. Jesus helps us zoom out. Sometimes if you're willing willing to let him take it, he'll help you zoom out a little bit. See things as he does. Jesus talking again in Luke chapter 12. He's talking to the crowd and he says to them, watch out. There's an exclamation point there. He's not just laying back, kind of chilling, you know, maybe a piece of wheat in his mouth, just kind of rattling off a few sayings. He's leaning forward and he's saying, watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Hint, he's talking to a mixed crowd of folks that are rich and some folks that are very destitute. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not actually consist in the abundance of your possessions. Wait, say what now? Say what now? This is essentially the Western cultural dream, right? This is the dream. You get more so that you can have the abundant life. He's killing it. He's killing it. It's actually very anti-American what he's saying, at least in some ways. Jesus is being very anti-American. The American dream is kind of on target here. Maybe that's not what he means. Surely not. Let's keep reading a little bit. And he told this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he, the farmer, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So this seems pretty good, right? Honest gain, bumper crop came in, hardworking farmer. We can kind of relate to that around here, right? Seems like a pretty good guy. And then he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store up all my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain. That's, that's their money back then. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I think that makes sense. This is the picture on the, uh, on the folders when you go to the financial planning. That's the guy in there, the, the, the good-looking guy in the, in the, in the, in the boots, and uh, he's got the, the shirt. The shirt, he's got the shirt. You know, maybe a farmer shirt. What's a farmer shirt? He's got a shirt. He's probably got the Carhartt jacket, and he's leaning against his tractor, and he's got a firm uh, foundation for retirement, right? This is our guy, and I think this, this is the model American that all of us are trying to be. Right? We're trying to work hard, save up, so that we can retire early and enjoy the good life. Then, then we can take the vacations. Then we can do all this stuff and not have to think about it. Then we can use it. By default, this is who we want to be. But God says to him, you fool. You fool. As I read this, I I don't sense anger. I think I used to read this and sense maybe God's like angry at this guy. Maybe he's a little angry, but I think as I read this and as I sense the heart of God throughout the scriptures, I think it's like a loving father to his wayward son. He loves him. He's saying, you fool. 
actually this very night your life's going to be required of you. You're going to have a heart attack in about eight hours. And then who's going to get what you're preparing for yourself? And this is how it's going to be with whoever stores up things for themselves and isn't rich towards God. Man, that's kind of disruptive if you let it land, I think. And it was for them too. Where did this guy go wrong? It wasn't because he was rich. You read the scriptures, it's really hard to find Jesus actually condemning richness or having resources or being wealthy. The love of money's bad. It wasn't because he was evil necessarily. It was because he already had enough and more came in and he decided to keep the excess, excess too, and he was going to spend it all on himself no matter what. He assumed the money was for him and that this life was all that really mattered. He laid up treasure for himself because he couldn't see reality as it truly is. It's a big thing. Jesus is zooming out and he's seeing reality. And he's like, you're not seeing the big picture. Yeah, you're investing for 30 years. Great. That's a good investment. But what about in 30 million years? Right? Well, that one's not for me. That, that one's from a book I read by Randy Alcorn, a really good book, Money, Possessions, and Attorney. But that one stuck with me. You should be investing for 30 million years if you actually believe that what Jesus said is true and that those who trust in him will rise up again and live forever and in the kingdom that will last forever. How are you investing? Oh, man. Yeah, maybe not as smart if you're thinking about 30 million year investment. What should he have done? How could he have laid up treasure in the eternal treasury? Back in 1 Timothy 6, I'm just really liking 1 Timothy 6 for this one. Paul's talking again to Timothy, and he says, command those who are rich in this present world, those in your, those in your church who are kind of rich, he says, make them give all their money away because they're terrible. That's actually not what he says. Pay attention. Command those who are rich to not be arrogant. Oh, it's so tempting to be arrogant. There's a lot of flavors of arrogant, but it's so tempting to be arrogant when you've got a little bit of money. So tempting. Be humble. Tell them not to put their hope in wealth because wealth is so uncertain. Oh man, has any of your, uh, if you've got a portfolio or your mutual funds, has any of it kind of gone down a little bit recently? Mine, I think, has. I've got a little bit in there. It's so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us with everything. He even says, for our enjoyment. That one's interesting. We could talk more about that one. He doesn't just say even for what you need, but even he provides for our enjoyment. He's a good father. He provides things for our enjoyment. Command them, those who are rich, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves. Isn't that interesting? Lay up treasure for themselves. It doesn't seem like maybe that's a bad thing. So they can lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life, the good life that's really life, the real good life that's zoomed out, that's got 30 million years, and the resurrection in view. If you don't believe in the resurrection, there's no reason to be living for 30 million years. That would be foolish. But if it's actually true, it would be really foolish to just live for the 30 years. Teach them to be generous so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. I, I, I got a lot of passages today. I just, I just love throwing passages out there. This one's going to be our theme passage. Maybe you want to write it down. Uh, in our life group, we're challenging each other to memorize a verse. And actually, you can do it. It's actually easier than a lot of us have gotten, uh, you know, the idea, man, you can't memorize everything. You can memorize a lot. Read over this one a few times. Put it on your uh, fridge. Put it on your speedometer because who cares how fast you're going, right? And... <laughs> 
and memorize this verse. Why am I having you memorize this verse? You're not rich. Maybe the last bummer here, but it's actually not a bummer. I'm submitting to you that you're rich. Most of us here are pretty rich, even if we don't feel it. Yeah, there's poverty. There's real poverty. Maybe in this room, folks watching online, there is real poverty. Food insecurity, all that stuff is real. And if you're struggling with that, we want to come alongside and help. But I'm going to submit to you that actually most of us are actually fairly rich by worldwide standards. If you adjust for all the things, median income Kansans are rich. Like the median income for Kansans, uh, and, and it differs a little bit between if you're a family of X number of kids or if you're uh, an individual, but median income Kansans are among the top four to 8% of the whole world in richness, adjusted for all the things. Even folks living at the poverty level in Kansas, 11.4% of Kansans live at or below the federal poverty level. It's not a lot of money. But our poor are still in the top 84 to 79% of the whole world, adjusted for all the things in terms of richness. Wealth, adjusted for all the things. Man, that should be a little shocking, right? Because we don't feel rich. But if we zoom out a little bit, Perhaps the Lord has a little bit different perspective for us. Those who think that they're not rich, they might be, especially here, because wealth tends to have a uh, a disruptive effect on our ability to see reality. It makes us stupid, and we tend to look around, and we compare ourselves, and we don't think we're rich. But we're actually pretty rich, and it actually could be a good thing. Jesus isn't down on being rich. Let's see. What are we to do? I hope you're asking, so what am I to do? Even though I'm like, you know, working 20 hours a week and going to school, what am I to do? What if I'm actually rich? Notice again that Jesus never condemns the rich for being wealthy. And I think that's a huge thing to notice. Being poor is not some blessed state, as some have mistaken. Being poor is actually no better or worse than being rich, at least spiritually speaking. But he rather warns the rich about the dangers, the dangers, the temptations that'll come with it. Don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope there because you'll be tempted to become arrogant and put your hope there. It's stupid, right? Because money comes and goes. Don't put your hope there. Everything that you're looking for from money, God's actually the one that gives you, right? So put your hope in God. He has richly provided for us through Christ. All of our spiritual needs are given and provided richly from Christ. But he even promises us that he will provide for our physical needs. He's like, I know. I know what you need. And I'm now your heavenly father. If you're my child, you can trust me to take care of you. He says, don't follow after those things like the pagans. He says this in Luke 12. It's not not on the screen. Don't follow after these things with anxiety like the pagans who don't know me and think they got to secure their own life. I know. I'll take care of you. Pursue me and my kingdom. And not only will those things be added to you as well, but you will be able to store up treasure in heaven. Use your wealth for kingdom purposes. Use, I'm going to risk pointing. You don't usually point. Use your wealth for kingdom purposes and see what the Lord does. For the blessing of others, for the doing of good, for the richness of good deeds that can come. Be generous and willing to share with others who have needs. Be generous because this is what God is like. 
All you have to do is, is look at the king of the universe on the cross. Come close. He who was rich became poor for our sakes so that we, through his sacrifice, might become rich. We're following in the footsteps of our savior when we decide to risk being radically generous with our money. As much as we'd like to get around it, our use of money is a discipleship issue. And you can take that negatively, and there's, there's a negative pill to swallow at the beginning, but it opens up the possibility for so much cool stuff. It's a discipleship issue. God wants to use our money and our use of money as a way to make us more like him and to bless the world. That's pretty cool. That seems pretty aspirational to me, especially if I can trust that God's going to take care of me. We're taking two weeks to talk about this. And today, we're kind of focusing in, especially as we kind of land here, on how following God in radical generosity is actually good for us. And next week, now we're going to talk about how it can be a blessing to others. So we're going to focus more on that next week. But it's actually good for us. Look there in verse 19. If you do this, if you live this way, you'll lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. It's pretty cool. On a firm foundation for the coming age so that we can take hold of that which is truly life. The good life is this way, even though it doesn't seem like it. Jesus also says uh, in Acts 20, 35, it's actually more happy to give than to receive. What if that's actually true? What if it's actually happier, more blessed, deeply fulfilling to give rather than to receive? Remember the rich farmer? He laid up treasure for himself too, but he wasn't rich towards God. He, didn't, he wasn't smart with it. It's actually wise. It's good for us to be wise to lay up treasure where it will last and in a form that it'll last in. There's this crazy thing where we can take temporal things that you can't take with you, right? King Tut's tomb is empty and his treasures are still there, or at least they were, right? He left and he left all of it. Uh, I think it's Rockefeller when he died. He had so much more money than everyone in the world. And this accountant famously was asked, how much did he leave? And the accountant said, all of it. That's right. You can't take it with you, right? So isn't it wouldn't it be interesting if we could take these temporal things that we can't take with us anyways? And at most, we've got, what, how many decades, right? That's not that long. What if we could transfer them? What if we could use them to make ripples in eternity? That would be a really wise investment. That would be good for us. It's good for you to know how to use your resources for kingdom purposes. Thank you, Jesus. That's actually really good to know. The true and eternal rewards. Okay. Randy Alcorn, that guy I was talking about. If you're looking for a book that's really challenging, and I think it's so rich, about how, learning how to change the way we think about money, this one has been fairly transformational in my life. Money, possessions, and eternity. And Alcorn says, Christ's words were direct and profound. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we do with our possessions is a sure indicator of what's in our heart. You want to know what you actually are like putting your trust in? Follow the trail of the money. It's a pretty decent indicator. But it also, what we do with our money doesn't just simply indicate where our heart is. According to Jesus, it even determines where our heart goes. This is cool. It's an amazing and exciting truth. If I want my heart to be in one particular place and not the other, then I should put my money there and not in the other place, right? If I want more of a heart for missions, he's heard. He always responds, Jesus tells us exactly how to get that. Put your money in missions and your heart will follow. Man, that's really cool because we're trying to grow in Christ's likeness. I don't really have a heart for missions. Put your money there. I guarantee you, you're going to start getting interested. 
You don't have a heart for the church? Put your money there. You're going to start getting interested. Don't have a heart for the poor. Don't have a heart for those who are uh, addicted to things and, uh, and struggling and you name it. You want a heart for that? Start putting your money there. Your heart and your interest is going to follow. Just like fantasy football, right? Every game starts getting interesting. We can use that for good. Become a radically generous giver. And in doing so, take hold of the life that's truly life. Man, for me, anxiety about money. I'm the saver type. And so anxiety about money has been kind of the flavor of my engagement with money, even though I've never not had enough. I don't know why. But that's my, the, the kind of the contours of my weakness in that area. I'm anxious about money by default. And so uh, I remember years ago when... Um, uh, in a process, in my process of discipleship, reading this book and being discipled by others, um, feeling anxious about money and hearing the uh, the general idea that the cure to anxiety about money is to give more. Oh God, I hated that. And so I tried it. Tried trusting God. Tried to see myself as rich even when I felt poor. And the more I practiced it, the more I realized it's true. It's true. The cure to anxiety about money is to give more. And it doesn't just bring you more joy and peace. It brings you fulfillment. Oh, man, the good life. It's actually there. It's pretty rewarding, more than you would expect. Maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about it after all. So as we land this plane, let's just land with a few next steps. I hope these are helpful to you. If you're trying to follow Christ and you're looking to disciple yourself more closely with Christ, consider these. First one, honestly assess where you think you're currently at in your thinking about and using money. Honestly, try to assess it. How are you thinking about? How are you using your money? What is your heart set? What is your strategy towards giving? If you have none, that's good to notice. A lot of folks are there. Does your standard of giving impact your standard of living? If it doesn't, you can probably afford to give more, right? Especially since we're rich. There should be things you can't do because of your commitment to regular sacrificial generosity. Next, sit down and make a budget, or if you have one, update it. Not a lot of folks have a budget, I'm realizing. Like, I like my Excel spreadsheets, but I'm finding I'm I'm maybe in the, like, minority here. I love the Excel spreadsheets and the cross formulas and all the... (laughs) Jen hated it. Um, Update your budget. If you've never done one, make one. You can even just start with something simple. Just get a general sense of how much is coming in, how much is going out, where are you at? Do you have extra that you could give? Is there a way that you can increase or maximize your income or decrease, maximize your expenses? And the goal here, making a budget, and this is maybe different than probably what you may have heard, the goal of making a budget is not so that you can save more or spend more, it's so you can give more. It's amazing how much money you can find in your budget to give if you're looking for it be pretty cool. Give more. Wherever you're at, give more. (laughs) See what you could do. Next, and this one might be the most awkward one. Ask someone who you trust to get eyes on your finances and give you feedback. I mean, financial counselors, yeah, that's good. Maybe we should probably all do that. I'm specifically talking about in the process of your discipleship to Christ. They don't have to be even a financial expert to just give you another perspective. What does it look like? This has been one that, uh, for me, was very awkward, but I've really benefited. And it's become a part of my discipleship process with guys I meet with. I've actually got a few of the guys that I meet with. This is on the docket for soon. We're going to do this. And it actually, it was before I knew as I'm preaching on this topic. How might you benefit if you risked 
letting others in there and giving you eyes on your finances. I guarantee you that you won't be the only one that it's like feels awkward, right? Because we're pushing against uh, cultural stuff here. It's gonna feel awkward. But most of the stuff we're pushing against in our discipleship feels a little awkward. And then you talk about it and you realize, actually, now it's, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm actually really glad I did. Um, pushing against that hyper-privatized view of our finances could be a really good thing. Why wouldn't you open this up as an aspect of your discipleship? Then finally, practice using your money for his purposes. This is where the giving part comes in. Practice giving, right? Wherever you're at, try to increase it some, right? If you're, if you're giving nothing, start giving 1% or $50, right? Start somewhere, get a little bit of progress and see what God does. See what God does. Uh, we've talked about the 1% challenge here. Uh, wherever you're at, if you go up, go up one more percent, try it. And then if that goes well, go up another one. Uh, look for opportunities to give above and beyond your standard regular giving, right? Look for fun opportunities to give on top of that and see how God might use you uh, to bless others, your friends. I bet some of them have needs. People in your small group, our church, but also in your neighborhood. There's folks in our city, opportunities around the world. Go talk to Ron about orphan uh, helpers ministry that's serving around the world. Could actually get kind of fun. Practice using your money for his purposes. All right, so uh, we're going to close here with a small little exercise that you're going to not do now, but that you're going to do this week. And most of you are going to have to do it on your own money. But five of you are going to get money from us to do it. This is going to be the church that gives back. Who comes to church and gets money? So I've got five envelopes here. This is an activity we've done at uh, uh, Tallgrass Church back in the day before we merged. We give you the church's money. There's varying amounts in here, 20s, some things, 50s. And the challenge for five folks who are willing to accept it is to take this money and use it for God's kingdom, however you might imagine this week. And then the only stipulation is be willing to tell us how it went. So I'm actually, uh, uh, yeah, I want to, to encourage, even if you don't get an envelope, to try that this week. But I think there's something special about having money that you know for sure isn't yours, because this one's going to dovetail into next week, and we're going to hear about them next week as we talk more about how it's actually not even our money. It's God's money. We learn to use it. We're stewarding it for his purposes, and it's actually fun. So uh, I'm actually looking for five volunteers. Who's willing? I see a hand back there. Who else? And I have no idea how much is in these. I actually want you to come up right now, if that's all right. Yeah, this is going to be fun. All right. We've got three more. You would bless us by taking one. That's right. And you can get as creative as you can with these things. Bring them back. Uh, you know, combine them with others. Come on. I'm going to start picking on people. Well, I'm going to leave two down here. And uh, uh, I'm going to start handing them out if you don't take them. So uh, let's look forward to that. And the band can go ahead and come up as we close in prayer. But the call today is to let discipleship and money start to mix. Learn to see your use of money as, as a discipleship issue. And practice this week. Take a step. All right. Can you pray with me as we close? Jesus, at the end of the day, I even in my natural anxiety about money, I, I don't want to just stay there. And I don't want to be the fool who comes back, you know, you know, in the resurrection, and I still recognize that even though I'm holding on to you with one hand, there's an, another part of my hands that's still holding on to dust. I, I don't want that. I don't want to be the fool, even in Christ. So, 
I want to become more like you, and I think that that's what we do too as a church. Lord, will you please stretch us into the good life? Teach us to trust you, even with small things. And I pray that you would grab our hearts with desire, with a view of eternity, and that we might take hold of the life that's really life. Lord, give us the good life as we give it to others. Lord, we know that you tend to love to pump your resources through your children's fingers so that we may share in your joy. Oh, Jesus. I pray that that would be on our hearts this week as we go from here and as we talk and as we have conversations around the table, as we journal, as we talk in our small groups, as we consider in our times with you. Lord, please, Jesus, call us forward into goodness as we follow you in discipleship with our money in the midst of a culture that's pushing upstream. In your name, Jesus, the King who calls us to goodness. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.